Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Jessica McDermott, author of Highway of Tears, a true story of racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Highway of Tears is a finalist for the 2020 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Jessica McDermott is a Canadian journalist who has worked across North America and Africa, writing for publications such as the Toronto Star, the Associated Press, Maison Neuve, Canadian Business, and the Harvard Review. Highway of Tears is her first book, and she lives here in British Columbia. Now, if you're not familiar with Jessica's book, Highway of Tears, maybe you caught the episode of The View, where Whoopi Goldberg held it up and called it an extraordinary book. Highway of Tears digs into the story that made headlines and attracted international attention from human rights organizations. It tells the stories of the women who live their lives in the region surrounding Highway 16 and exposes the society and systems that failed and continues to fail the women and the Indigenous communities who fight for and remember them. Jessica starts our conversation with a reading from her book. In the spring of 1995, two teenagers were four-wheeling in a muddy clearing just off Yelich Road. The narrow dirt lane angles north off the highway 11 kilometers west of Smithers, passing a few properties before brushing up against the northern edge of the airport runway and bending around old rugby fields that served as a popular party pit for local teens. It was April 9th, still chilly, and green shoots would have been just starting to emerge from the poplar groves that planked the road the forest floor still the dull gray-brown left behind after the snow's melt. The boys got stuck and headed into the woods in search of a log to use as a pry bar. Instead, they found a body on the edge of the woods in a thicket where the limbs of young trees formed an archway over the remains. Beside the body was a piece of bright yellow rope and three white nylon cable ties. Clothes, leggings, a purple sweatshirt were nearby. The phone rang at Matilda's house on Railway Avenue. An officer told her about the remains found at the airport, told her that they weren't sure yet who it was. But Matilda had a feeling then, a stirring deep in her gut. Soon, the police called back. They had identified the body through dental records. Matilda buried her youngest daughter in the Smithers Cemetery, less than two kilometers from the hospital where she had been born. Standing straight and tall, Matilda told a local reporter that she had something to say to the man who killed her daughter. I want to give him a message. I want to tell him there's a God and he will pay in the worst way. That time will come for him. He just has to wait for it. Nobody gets away with murder, nobody. And then Matilda fell apart. She went home and agonized over how her daughter had died, what those last moments had been like, what Ramona was thinking as she took her last breath. Matilda started drinking and she didn't figure she would stop until she too was dead. She wanted to go somewhere else, to wherever Ramona was now. She didn't really make a suicide plan. She just drank and waited to die. It was late May or maybe early June when Matilda received a card from her eldest daughter. Brenda wrote that she and her brothers were hurting and didn't know what to do. They needed their mom. Without her, they would die too. She had to come back to them. 
and Matilda, who loves her children more than anything, did. The second weekend in June 1995, Matilda led the Ramona Wilson Memorial Walk down Highway 16 to Yelich Road for the first time. She has done it every year since. It has changed over the decades. It doesn't cover the 11 kilometers from Smithers to the place where Ramona was found anymore. Many of the walkers, including Matilda, have grown too old to travel that distance. Other walkers, perhaps a dozen, who came every year for so many years have passed away now. And the walk isn't just about Ramona anymore. It's about all the girls and women who have been taken from the Highway of Tears. Some, like Ramona, turned up dead. Others, like Delphine, simply gone. Matilda marches for them all. Thank you. I guess my first question is I was doing a bit of research at getting ready for this, and I saw someone describe you as a true crime writer. What do you think of that description of your writing? I, I don't think of this book as a true crime book at all. Uh, it's been described that way by some in some places. Um, but to me, I mean, the it's a book about crime, but but it's going beyond that sort of typical, I think, um, true crime genre of, of sort of the whodunit uh, and looking at much bigger questions uh, regarding colonialism in Canada and racism and how this has been allowed to happen on the Highway of Tears and in so many other areas across Canada. And I think it also puts a lot more sort of time into the girls and women who, who went missing and, and who were murdered. And it really is about, about them and their families and their families' long fight for, for justice that's still ongoing. Yeah, I was su- I was surprised when I saw that because I wouldn't describe it as a true crime book either. And one of the things that really came across me as I was reading it was that it really has this strong sense of place. And as much as it's about the people, it's also about the place in Canada where all of this unfolded. And of course, you have a connection to that place. You grew up in Smithers. What was it like to grow up in um, that part of B.C.? Growing up, I hated it up there. <laughs> I mean, I say up there because it's further north than the than than many places in Canada. But um, you know, it's remote. It's a twelve plus hour drive to Vancouver, which would be the closest uh, real city. But it is a really, I mean, it's a really really beautiful area and a really interesting region, which I I certainly appreciate now in a way that I I didn't then. But also a region where you know a lot of awful things have been taking place for for many 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 years, and there's been very little response. and And I think that the the geography and where it's located is part, certainly not all, but is certainly part of how this has been ignored for so long. Because you know it's really it's sort of away from from the prying eyes of of big city media and and most people, quite frankly. Yeah, and. Were you aware of the kind of, like, did you hear these names in the news? Did you hear about these things as you were growing up? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. I mean, Ramona Wilson, who I just read about, and they would have been just a few years older than me. Uh, so I was cer- certainly aware that they were missing. And, you know, there was posters hung up around town. And then I, I vaguely remember hearing about some of the other cases, you know, that had happened around that time. And there was this 
sort of knowledge that this was going on, that First Nations girls were disappearing off the highway. And, you know, some some had been found murdered, and I think all were probably assumed to to have been murdered. Um, I think what wasn't really pervasive was a sense that there was something unusual about this, and that this was something that people should be really up in arms about. I mean, it was kind of, it was described by one fellow as a sad undercurrent in the communities. And I, I think that's quite apt. Yeah. And this is your first book and you've traveled uh, internationally. You've written about all sorts of different places, but this was the story that became the focus of your first book length project. What do you think it was about this story that, that, drew you home and drew you to this kind of a, a long exploration? I I think that it had been in my mind for a long, long time. I mean, growing up there and thinking, how can this be happening? And why is nobody doing anything about this? And I think, I, I, you know, by my late teens, I, I sort of thought that there should be a book done about this uh, and there should be more attention paid. And, you know, I, I'd gone back once previously and and talked to some of the family members with the idea that in, you know, the summer that I had, I'd be able to write a book on the Highway of Tears and pretty rapidly realized that that wasn't possible. I think I was about 24 and did not have the time, did not have the skill, did not have the maturity. Um, but I, but I stayed with it and I followed it and, you know, I always kind of watched it. And then I got to a point where I'd been working at the Toronto star for a couple of years and I was sort of having a little bit of a, I don't know, quarter life crisis and, and feeling that, you know, I didn't want to be a city reporter forever. And what I had always wanted to do was was write books. And so that led to applying for the King's uh, University of King's College MFA program and and beginning work on this. But, you know, even then I was I was quite sure going in that I wanted to do a book on the Highway of Tears. And then there was various people who had sort of said, oh, well, don't you think it's been done because there have been, you know, a couple media stories and and that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe something else would be a better idea. And I spent a few months working on a different project and I just it was like pulling teeth like I couldn't I just literally could not do it and I realized that that was you know my subconscious being wiser than me and and that you know the book that that had to be done was the highway of tears one and so returned to it after a few months misguided months it's interesting you talked about the that it was kind of a sad undercurrent and also that this feeling like it should be written about. And you quoted a report uh, in the book that where the author kind of at the end said, like, this was happening in Canada. Like, there was this kind of shock that this was happening in Canada. And it seems like there's kind of still that attitude. And I wondered what, what some of the challenges you faced in writing the book, like you were kind of shining a light into these dark corners that many of us would rather kind of not talk about or remain hidden. Did you face challenges in trying to dig that up? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of things that were difficult. Try, I mean, I know I was saying, I don't think of it as true crime and I don't, but part of what I wanted to do was, you know, dig into these cases and try and figure out what happened and, and, try and find any gaps that might exist or 
or that sort of thing. And, you know, that process is, is really difficult and, and got really overwhelming. I mean, partly because the book deals with so, so many cases that I felt. And I, I mean, I still feel like there were things that I, I could have chased harder, followed more, looked into more and, and just, you know, eventually, eventually my editor was like, you have to finish the book. <laughs> So I think that part was was kind of difficult. And I think, you know, writing about where where you're from and like I had lived away for a long time when I went back about 15 years, but these are really small towns. And, you know, as soon as you're back and you're walking down Main Street and Smithers and you're like, oh, that person looks really familiar. So, you know, a lot of people. And so as you're looking in and you're hearing stories, you know, a lot of the names are familiar and uh, and, you know, people who are then wondering what you're up to. And there was certainly people with I think trepidation and who maybe didn't approve of what I was doing. And, and uh, that's that small town reporting thing. I think I, I found quite stressful at times and, and just really strange after spending most of my career working as a journalist in big, big, big cities. Is there an attitude in, in Smithers and in Prince George and Prince Rupert that, you know, this story, this, what's happened with the highway of tears has kind of, brought attention to that part of the world that they would prefer <laughs> to have not happened is that is there that attitude there you know I don't I don't think there is as much as there used to be um I mean when I was going through old newspaper stories and, and piecing things together from you know the 90s and you would have city councilors at city council meetings saying that it was so awful that the media was, you know, painting Prince George as murder city because three teenagers had been murdered in the last six months and it was getting some attention in the media. And, you know, somebody had written back and said, well, you know, let's stop the, the murders <laughs> as opposed to getting mad at the media for telling people about it. Um, so, so I didn't encounter that as much. I mean, I think in recent years there, there had been some, um, like some municipal officials that had really worked very hard on this issue and been, you know, pretty powerful proponents for, for the families and uh, for addressing some of these things. Um, so I think that the, the attitude there, like probably many, many places in Canada had, had shifted a little. I imagine it still exists, but I probably didn't hear about it because, you know, those people wouldn't have come up to me and said something. Yeah. Um, but but I imagine it still exists. And certainly the the concerns that you know I would hear came largely from white people in these communities. And I I suspect that was sort of part of it. Like, you know, that it's gonna make this look like a horrible place or like everybody's racist or, or that sort of thing. So I, I think people were nervous about it for sure. Yeah. And we talked about, you know, that it's not a true crime book, but that you dug into these crimes, but you also dug into the colonial crimes and the racist crimes of the country, which, I mean, you can't write about one without the other. Um, and part of that was was shining a light on the RCMP and the history they have in the province and nationally. Was that, I mean, I would imagine that was challenging to, you needed them for information, but you also were critical of them at the same time. So how did you approach that relationship with the RCMP? So, I mean, for a lot of the the book, I, I had done some interviews with the RCMP, um, the, the main 
investigator and sort of media contact person. And, you know, it was fairly limited in, in what he would or, or could say, these are open investigations. So they're certainly not gonna crack files and, and tell you anything. Uh, but, but the majority of the reporting for the early, early stages was with families and, and, and going to communities and meeting with families and, and hearing everybody's stories. And, and then it was sort of in the later stages where I put a lot, then it was trying to find police who had worked in that area, um, get some of their insight, get some ex more information about the cases than you know the active RCMP would would tell you. And for the most part, I think you know most of those officers. I mean, either they don't respond to you when you ask to talk to them, or they respond because they have something to say and and they think that it's it's a worthwhile thing. And and you know the I've only heard from a couple since the book actually was published, and they were really really positive about it. Uh, so that, you know, that was nice, but, but those are the sort of relationship. I mean, as a, as a journalist where you, you hope that it's, it's respectful and it's pleasant. And certainly all of my interactions were, um, with all the officers, but, uh, but you sort you know, that you're probably, you're coming at something from <laughs> different kind of perspectives and, uh, and there is some tension there and I, you know, I think we all expect it and, and it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing that one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was the attention you spent on um, telling the stories of the women and girls. And I think too often in true crime books and in when we are reading about this stuff in the news, we just see a picture and a name and we don't get to hear about the person that lived. Uh, we just know about them after they died. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about why it was so important to create those portraits of these women and girls for your book. Something I always wonder about as a journalist in, you know, many contexts with many, many different things going on is how, how we accept it, you know, how can these horrors unfold and no one does anything about it. And I, I think there's a lot of reasons but you know one is I think too often in the way stories are told in in media reports that sort of thing is that the, hum the humanity is lost you know as as you said like there's a, a name in a photo maybe there's numbers so when it comes to missing and murdered indigenous women and girls we hear there's 1200 or there's 4000 in Canada but there's a real disconnect from, you know, our, our shared humanity. Like these things don't have an emotional impact on people. And so I thought it was really important to, I mean, honor, honor the girls and women and their families and share their stories in a way that people would, would be led beyond the, the numbers or, or sort of the media report. And, um, have an emotional reaction to it in a way that I think too often people don't. And then these things get sort of swept under the rug or shuffled off to the side and nobody does anything about them. And I think too, the way you wrote about it and you, you talked about this in the book was contrasting, you know, the way we talk about missing and murdered 
white women, white girls, white boys and white men versus indigenous women and girls. And that um, the language we use to talk about them is so different. And the way we describe their lives is so different. And I thought it that was an interesting piece to include, especially in the way you talked about the lives they lived before, too. I think that's a huge problem. In, and, and it is another part of the answer of how we let these things go on and on and on is the way that that it's talked about. And so you know, when it came to many of these girls and women and many sort of similar cases across the country, either it's not talked about at all or the way it's talked about is very victim blaming in, you know, these stories sort of told in such a way that like, well, of course, this is what happened. Uh, and so it doesn't it doesn't garner public sympathy. It doesn't garner political will to do anything. It doesn't create pressure on the police brass to launch a task force. And so, I mean, there's sort of, there's a double whammy there where it's either, you know, you're not spoken about or the way you're spoken about is so disrespectful and so inaccurate, frankly, um, that it actually harms the cause and it harms, you know, the chances for justice. Yeah, the way that all they were all just painted as kind of runaways and that, mm -hmm. you know, it was almost expected that they would run away and that people should just ex almost accept that as being part of their, their reality. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, that was my recollection of when you would hear about this case and there'd be sort of, you know, shrugging and like, oh, well, no, shouldn't hitchhike or, you know, that's why you shouldn't do like it would be given to you as a teenager as a lesson of why you shall not do whatever. And, and, you know, it was rare to hear somebody react the way you would, you know, when it's your own family or it's, you know, your own community. And then I think that that just, I mean, it's reflected in comments from police in, in reports and in, in media uh, articles and from the way that the media themselves does it. And then in, in, you know, some academic research about this sort of thing that's been done as well. Yeah. So even though it like you grew up in the area and you had kind of, in a way, a personal connection to it because you remembered hearing the names and I know you did a lot of the research on the ground to meeting with the families, you weren't in the book a lot. And I was curious about that choice to not include yourself as a narrator in the book. I didn't think that there was much value, to be honest, in, in the sense of the narrative. I mean, a lot of the narrative takes place long before I had anything to do with any, any of it. And I wanted it, I mean, I wanted it to focus on the women and girls and their stories and on what happened. At the same time as, I mean, the couple of times I do appear, I think it's just largely because I felt like it was important to be transparent about my role, my connection to the area. And, and, and you know, I think as a, as a settler from that area, it had been suggested by some people that, you know, sort of a memoir, what it was like to grow up on the highway of tears or... Um, you know, how this affected you. And, and the truth is, it, it hardly affected me because I was a, a white kid from that area. You know, I, I wasn't. Um, and I think my experience is reflective of a lot of white people settlers in that area and that there is this this divide, you know, and if, if you are not Indigenous, you're not facing those those risks and those fears and the, the racism and, and you know, injustice, and it doesn't affect you all that much and, and makes it really easy to not look away or not even realize that it's happening. And I, 
I just didn't, I mean, I didn't see any value in adding what, what I thought about or what I was doing when I was 15, when this happened, because it just, it's not part of the, the story. Yeah. Were you ever concerned about being a, a settler writing this story? Was that ever a concern for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I wondered many, many, many times if I should be doing it at all. Uh, and I, you know, I, I talked to some family members about it at, at various stages, you know, and it, it was so important to me that it was done well, that it was done right, you know, and that it, it respected the families and the communities and that in, I mean, with the final product, like the actual book, but also the whole process by which I went about it. And so, I mean, I, I definitely made mistakes, but I tried to respect protocols to, you know, take a lot of time, get to know communities, ensure that I had permission, the necessary permission and the sort of ethical permissions to be doing what I was doing and, and to be really, really sensitive and really careful about how, how I approached it. What was the response from the families and the communities with your book? Really supportive. Uh, I, I was surprised, I think, and really honored by how how supportive it was. I mean, I think at the beginning when I was starting to research it, there was definitely probably some trepidation and some reluctance. I mean, a lot of, we talked about victim blaming, but a lot of these families have, you know, spoken to reporters and then seen their their daughter, a 15-year-old, or, you know, portrayed in a really negative light that's you know not accurate and and that's really really hurtful to people so I think there's there's worry about a journalist and you know how they'll do things I already knew some of the the family members and people and had been in touch with them for a long time so that helped and uh, I spent a lot of time with families I walked the highway of tears twice over the course of um, researching this book and you know part of that was sort of research and scenes for the book but a lot of it was just getting to to know people and communities and you know, being being part of things and being present there to discuss with people what I was doing. And yeah, and then and then before I mean, before the, the book was published, anybody, any of the families who wanted to, I gave them the opportunity to review the parts of the book that involved their stories and and their families um, stories to make sure that they were comfortable with everything that was in it. And and then by the time the book came out, yeah, it was uh, it was quite overwhelming how how positive and, and just really supportive families have been in the whole process. And, you know, it's, I'm so grateful. And it's really, really just the honor of a lifetime to, to share these stories and, and to know so many incredible people. I think one of, one of the parts of the book that touched me the most was were the parts about the walks and the the relationships also that were that you showed that were built between the families mm-hmm. were just so were so touching and you just mentioned that you you walked the highway of tears twice and I I guess wondering what that experience was like for you to walk the highway with the families it was it was so many things <laughs> Um, the first walk I did was in June 2016, and it was uh, marking the anniversary of the first walk ever done that had happened in 2006. And, you know, I, I heard about it, I think, three days before it was happening. And I had gotten back to Northwest BC quite recently and was in pretty early days of putting putting things together and working on the book. And so I had asked if I could come to 
the initial ceremony and there was going to be a forum and sort of conversation when it started and uh, Brenda Wilson organized it so she said yes you can come and so I spent the morning at the forum and met some people and told people what I was up to and had some really good chats and and then I was asking them what who who all was walking for you know they were walking 750 kilometers to Prince George and who all was walking and it was Brenda and Angie Chalifo it was just the two of them <laughs> that were the sort of main people and Brenda said oh do you want to walk and I said yes <laughs> and so you know that was the start of it and I mean, at that point, like, I just knew, I mean, I knew so little about, about the issues and the families and the, the communities and it, and it was such a strange, I mean, I remember and walking the highway, it's a little bit of a metaphor for the larger experience where, you know, you're walking along this highway that I've driven my entire life. I have absolutely no idea how many times, you know, I've gone up and down it. And yet seeing all of it in a, in a totally different light, seeing things I'd never seen before, because as you're walking, it's, you know, a very different experience than driving it. And it was really, really, really powerful. And it was, you know, as I said, that's sort of a metaphor for the larger experience too, of, of coming back to this place that you thought you knew and realizing there's just so much going on there that you had no idea about. Yeah. My last question for you is uh, on on finishing the book, and you kind of alluded to the fact that your editor was kind of just like, you have to finish the book. But I, you know, in reading it, it you finish with the uh, the report on the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and kind of this like question put to the reader. And I wondered, like, it's only been, what, a year since the book was published? Yeah. And in some ways it feels like, that book needs like six more chapters or something, you know, like I thought so <laughs> at least six more chapters. Send this to um, the editor. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it seems like so much of what you touched on in the pages of the book is still in the headlines of newspapers and on the radio. And how do you kind of end it? Like you ended it, but how do you end it for yourself knowing, you know, the story just kind of keeps on unfolding? Yeah. And, and you don't, or I certainly haven't. Um, I mean, I still follow everything. I, I still hear, I mean, I'm in touch with um, most of families, uh, some on a really regular basis, talk sometimes about ideas for other projects and, and that sort of thing. And I, and I hear from people, I mean, so yeah, I mean, to me, it, it's not anywhere near over or put to bed or away I, sometime, at some point. Um, but certainly it isn't now. Yeah. How do you, I mean, there's lots of talk about the RCMP in, in the media and you wrote, wrote about the RCMP in the book. What's, what's your response to kind of the attitudes around the RCMP right now? I mean, I think that for so many years, you know, in terms of the Highway of Tears, family members had been talking about the lack of investigation, the lack of caring, the overall response of the RCMP. And, and the RCMP had always pretty much said, we investigated thoroughly, we did everything well, you know, and no cases ever closed. And it became incredibly, and I don't know that those assertions were often challenged by journalists, 
so, sometimes, but not, not in a big way. And I mean, certainly what I found was that absolutely many of these cases were not investigated thoroughly and families were not treated respectfully. And, you know, there's huge holes in, in some of them. And the RCMP is not really actively investigating these cases now. I mean, they had a task force, but it's largely wound down. Um, and so, you know, the, the idea that, that the RCMP seems to have that you can just say everything's fine and, and keep rolling and it, like, no, it's not. And that's very, very clear. And, you know, at the bare minimum, I think that the, like the, the issue is so broad and it's so systemic and it's so institutional. And I really gained a, an appreciation for, for what that means too. you know, like for so many years in the, you would hear if there was an issue with it, you know, the cops did something bad, maybe there would be an individual officer that would be in trouble. And it was, you know, the RCMP brass would say, oh, there's the odd bad apple or there's the odd racist cop or, and, and, you know, that's complete bullshit. It's, it's way beyond, and it, it's, it's not an individual issue and that massively oversimplifies it. Um, you know, this is like deep seated systemic historical and present racism and, and abuse of power and so many other things. And, you know, that has to be addressed in a really, really, really big way, or we're going to keep seeing these kinds of things. And we're going to keep seeing the, the complete lack of trust in the RCMP or and in police forces to do what ostensibly is their job, you know, protecting and serving the public. Thanks so much to Jessica for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for listening and subscribing and talking about the episodes. We really appreciate it, and we couldn't do it without you. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. And if you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Sarah Cassidy, author of Nevers, which was nominated for the Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.